Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and we have uh, here with me Mr. Martin Goofball Willis. I know I've called you that before, but you're being uh, extra yeah. goofy this morning. A little bit extra today, yeah. I guess I deserve that one. Or this afternoon oh. or this evening for you out in the East Coast. That's right. I deserve that again. So we're recording early because uh, tomorrow is going to be a busy day, so it's actually Sunday. So happy Father's Day. Hey, well, thank you. Mm-hmm. I enjoy mm-hmm. being I a dad. I know you're a father. Yes. Mm-hmm. And how's your day going? It's good. I'm just puttering around, and, you know, it's it's a good day here in Maine. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Well, yeah. let's do our introduction to this is Open Mind UFO Radio, where we cover credible UFO news and information. We do it from a journalistic kind of standpoint, looking at substantiated information and calling out, you know, letting you know if it's speculation, which is different from a lot of the UFO field, because a lot of it is based on speculation. And today's really, or, or this uh, era and time is interesting to see how everybody deals with all of this uh, interesting information that's coming forth lately. So uh, we, at the beginning of the show, we'll review the news here with Martin. And then the second and third uh, parts of segment of the show are our interviews. And uh, who are we interviewing? Well, this is a special show. We have Nick Pope who used to work for the Ministry of Defense investigating UFOs. So a very similar job, really, to Elizondo's. Uh, mm-hmm. His was a little bit different in that they were public-facing, so he had to deal with the public, whereas the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, ATIP, was more hidden and secretive where they didn't have to deal with the public. So Lou Elizondo, the former head of that organization, um, is now having to deal with the public and uh, no doubt has his hands full with that. Um, But... We'll be talking to Nick Pope about his experience, similarities between the criticisms that he's received and uh, Lou has received, and uh, a particular interest is Nick's insight into how press offices work with the in the defense arena, because. Uh, for instance, he's used the term "spin and dirty tricks," essentially saying, you know that. The way they dealt with the press is to try to kind of throw them off the scent. And he sees similar things happening uh, with the way that uh, especially the Defense Department is dealing with with all of this right now. So we'll get into those details uh, with our interview with Nick. Uh, Of course, every time I talk to him, it's extremely insightful and uh, educational. And so I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. So, yeah, we'll be talking about that momentarily. Um, yeah, it's great. You know, Nick, thing about Nick is he only, he only interviews with a few people and you're one of those people that he 
he does interviews with. He's very fussy. So um, he I'll, is, I'll, yeah. I'll, it is hard because yeah. uh, he he's mostly he, he gets a lot of attention. He mostly pays tr- attention to the mainstream media, but uh, fortunately, I have lots of friends in the mainstream media, and uh, he's one of them. We've always kind of seen, seen eye to eye, uh, or at least um, been able to communicate well with one another. Mm-hmm. So very exciting stuff. Very exciting. Great. So we'll get into that in a minute, but there's been a lot of exciting news this week. So would you like to start off the news, Mr. Willis? Well, sure. Um, you know, when something happens, I'm sure it happens to you as well. Um, I get a flood of email, and I'm sure you did too. And this one, uh, this morning I woke up, uh, starting last night actually, and about the exclusive uh, Trump says he doesn't particularly believe in unidentified flying objects. And this uh, this is right here at ABC News. And uh, so it's that's the title of it, actually. And uh, President Donald Trump said he doesn't particularly believe in unidentified flying objects, UFOs, despite a rise in reports of unidentified aircraft by U.S. Navy pilots. I think that's interesting. They actually added that to the part of the news. In an exclusive interview with ABC News chief anchor George Stephanopoulos this week, the president was asked what he made of the increased reports. Well, I don't know if I should do a, try to do a Trump uh, impersonation. I'll probably get hate mail. I'll, I'll, I'll just wing it. So he goes, this is a direct quote that he says, I think it's probably I want them to think whatever they think they do. They say they've seen I've read I've heard. And I did have one brief meeting on it. Now, I think that's the interesting line right there. But people are saying they're seeing UFOs. Do I believe it? Not particularly, he said. And asked if he thought um, he would know if there was a case of extraterrestrial life. The president replied, well, I think my great pilots would know. Our great pilots would know. They see things a little bit different from the past. So we're going to see. We're watching. And you'll be the first to know. So I think that's uh, I think that's interesting. In other words, uh, you know, he might tweet this out if um, if he finds out something that would that would be something, wouldn't it? Well, who knows? I mean, uh, what's interesting, like you said, is that he did receive a very brief meeting on it. So who told him what? That'll be mm. interesting to know. We do know from uh, LePay, who was an executive producer on Unidentified, who I'm actually doing a special little interview with tomorrow. That's one of the things I'm going to be busy with. So I'll post that tomorrow. But he has some things that he wants to share. So that'll be a, a little bonus kind of piece for you all coming tomorrow. You can expect that uh, tomorrow being Monday. So this airs the same day. So sometime today, I guess, for most of you. But... I don't know if that will be reflected in the show, as although Lope has told us that their uh, the to the stars influence on getting uh, information to the Congress is featured on the show. So we'll talk a little bit about that with uh, Lope. But uh, it's interesting. He says he does not believe, but uh, he does say, you know, I think that uh, our pilots would know, and of course we know from uh, David Fravor. Uh, thus far, and then the uh, female pilot who was his wingman or wing person uh, in his incident in 2004. These were, you know, Navy pilots. 
and they believe that they encountered something that was beyond our technology. Uh, we also have these small clips from Lieutenant Graves and Akoin, a couple of Navy jet fighter pilots who had encounters in 2015. Uh, and that will also be in the fourth episode of Unidentified, more about them. But uh, the other videos that the New York Times released, or that To the Stars released, they released three total, one from the Nimitz incident, the other two from the 20, 000, 2015 incident um, off the coast of Florida uh, with uh, Graves and Nicoin, two of the pilots involved with some of those encounters. But they also believe that they encountered something uh, unusual. So uh, the pilots, at least some of them, do believe that uh, you know there's something to the UFO phenomena. And, of course, the Navy seems to as well because they have some new guidelines they put together for tracking UFOs. So the Navy's certainly taking it very seriously. Um, and uh, maybe because his meeting was very brief, we don't know when this meeting happened or, or the nature of it. But perhaps if he got updated, he would think uh, differently. Uh, maybe he's watching the show. Or, speaking of news items, another item that you'll see in the headlines on OpenMinds.tv is that Lou Elizondo wrote an opinion piece this week, just the other day, for uh, President Trump's favorite news outlet, which is Fox News. So Fox News actually posted something from Elizondo. Not that there is a lot of new information in this opinion piece, but he's essentially sharing, hey, I worked for the Pentagon. It was my job to look and investigate these military cases. Myself and others came to the conclusion that there was more to this phenomena than many people believe, and it is worth a closer look. And he, and he left, you know, because he wanted uh, the government to pay more attention to this uh, phenomena. And his leaving and then uh, kind of, you know, uh, all of the splash that's been made in the media seems to have prompted the government to take further action. So uh, his leaving has been uh, successful for for those reasons. But um, yeah, mm -hmm. that's interesting, right? That Fox News would have, of course, they've interviewed Elizondo, Nick Pope, um, Fravor, the wing commander. Maybe I wouldn't doubt if these other pilots will also be interviewed on Fox News. So certainly the president is seeing some of this stuff, I would imagine. Oh, you know, I never even thought of that angle, but mm -hmm. you're, and that may have prompted the briefing. He may have even asked for a briefing um, on that. Wow, interesting. Um, because I know that uh, is it Tucker Carlson or something mm -hmm. like that. He he does a lot of the, a lot of the interviews on UFOs. Uh, Nick Pope and everyone else. Right, exactly. Yeah. He's had a lot of these these guys on multiple times. Mm hmm. Which is great. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to talk, uh, you, you talked just a second ago about Unidentified. And did you happen to catch the uh, tweet from Tom DeLonge? Uh, what if I was briefed by Italian intelligence that a UFO shot a military helicopter out of the sky? And that there are pics to see, and this is all for you to see on our next two episodes, Unidentified on the History Channel. Yeah, that was mysterious. I know what you're talking about, Tom DeLonge tweeted exactly what you said which of course is shocking if you said that i would freak that's my answer that would be crazy but uh, mm -hmm. he said what if i told you as a question mark and then he deleted that tweet oh um, he deleted it he did so <laughs> uh why did he post that is is this hmm. kind of you know we've i've heard uh, that there's something mind-blowing in the last episode the sixth episode of unidentified i have no clue what it is 
Um, you know, uh, nobody's alluded to what it might be, but if, is that it? And if it is it, why is Tom DeLonge spoiling that news, you know, getting it out there? Or is he messing with us? Is that, you know, even the case at all? But the, I don't know what to make of that tweet. Yeah, yeah. The fact that he took it down, he must have gotten some grief from that. Mm-hmm. You know, from the History Channel, perhaps. You never know. Yeah, maybe, because I would imagine show there. Obviously, you and I, for instance, got these interviews with Elizondo um, and we know how careful they're being uh, the yeah. History Channel with all the information, because, of course, we had a, it was quite an effort to even get mm. those interviews. So um, and I know from trying to arrange different interviews and, and information and people keep I don't know if this is happening to you, but it's happened to me over the past few months that people are like, how do I get to Elizondo? You know, and I always send them to the history channel and they're usually bummed because, uh, you know, they have to wait in line or, 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 you know, go through like we do with, uh, the process. But, um, yeah, that could be, uh, I would not imagine that they would want him sharing, uh, information about future episodes like that. So maybe it was them. So is that true or not? I don't know. Um, that ought to be, well, I guess we'll find out. And we don't have to wait long. We're already uh, essentially halfway through the series. We're, we, they had That's episode right. three just the other day. Uh, another great episode, uh, I thought. And so we've only got three left. Yeah, that's right. Um, do you think they're going to now th- a renew or do any more segments? Or this is the, the whole shebang and they're done? No, I think they have a second season, uh, and I can't remember specifically why I believe this, if I was told this, but I'm pretty sure uh, I I did hear through some, you know, uh, way that they, they do have a second season queued up. Hmm. Wow. Well, it's certainly not like anything else that's ever been on TV before. No, it's not. It feels weird. I mean, it's weird that we have this show that's on the History Channel, it has, you know, kind of the the music and, and the, the, the trappings of, of a regular kind of uh, reality show. But you have these officials, these retired officials, these, these uh, this guy who worked at the Pentagon, essentially almost like a whistleblower giving us information from behind the scenes. And uh, and that spills out from just the show. Usually it's just, you know, contained within the show or the fan base of the show. But no, this is also playing out on Fox News, on CNN, on ABC with George Stephanopoulos. Um, it's, you know, it's also a big news thing where we've got this wild, you know, information kind of coming forward through the show and through the news. And it's just, it is so strange. It's, it's very surrealistic. It is. It's, it's really, uh, you said it at the top of the show. It's interesting times we're in. It it just seems almost seems like a a slight snowballing of it. You of know things happening. It is, and it's really surreal for me. And I think for listeners, I wonder if you would agree. And I, and not to pat myself on the back, really, but if you've been reading my articles and my stories, I I think what's really strange. And I know that Tyler Rogaway, because I've been speaking with him, who writes with, uh, you know, the Drive uh, War Zone, kind of feels similarly with some of the stuff he's written, is that we're seeing a lot of the information from our articles playing out on the screen. 
And mm. it's just really weird. It, it's kind of a great thing because it shows, you know, that uh, I was accurate in my reporting. And, and like Lou said in my interview, but, um, you know, not a lot of a lot of people were kind of hung up on different things instead of paying attention to the meat of what is going on. And um, now we're seeing that. And uh, and I think, you know, my listeners will be like, hey, you know, Alejandro already told me about this. He already told me about that. This is mm. just like Alejandro's article. And you got to know what's weird about this also. Uh, and I think that's why I've been hearing from LePay is that, you know, I wrote my articles completely independent of these guys. I didn't even know the show existed. So while I'm writing my articles, they're writing their scripts and or even had shot this stuff already. And, uh, you know, they turn out very similar. But that's the way, you know, the facts should play out. If you're both following a trail of facts, you know, the facts don't change. You may be able to look at them in different ways. But I think they're laying them out just like an investigative journalist would. And so the facts are laying out in a, in a similar way. And it's very exciting. It's very strange. It's, it's fun. Um, and I can't wait to see where this all goes because, of course, I've only written about bits and pieces of this I've been able to catch wind of or get interviews about with uh, some of the people in the know, like George Knapp and Leslie Kane. And, and of course, George Knapp, uh, his writing, he's been revealing a lot of these these nuggets uh, all along. Um and and these are people, you know, people have been bashing us, uh, and I'm not even sure why, because we're sharing information, and they've been uh, grouping together me with Leslie Kane and George Knapp and saying things like, oh, we're biased and everything. But you know what? I First of all, I am so honored to be grouped together with these guys, even if, if it is to be bashed together with them. But <laughs> I feel that their writing has been proven over and over and over and over again to be accurate, 100% accurate, which isn't surprising to me because I've been following these guys for years and they've always been accurate. But their work has held up to scrutiny and boy, has it been scrutinized. And uh, it's really held up even to my own scrutiny uh, because I've scrutinized their articles. I mean, it, it's our job to make sure, you know, all of the points uh, that they have uh, as said are accurate and to substantiate them on our own and uh and they have i mean uh even though for instance leslie kane's original article or the article that was a group effort with ralph blumenthal and helene cooper on the new york times in december 2017 uh it was a group effort of course but even though they didn't include uh the original organization that received the funding, OSAP, the Advanced mm -hmm. Aerospace Weapon System Application Program, it didn't include any of that or the paranormal background. Uh, it still was accurate as to the perspective and the information they had. They just I know uh, people are are picking on that one that one little detail, you know, as if, you know, they throw the baby out with the bathwater right. type of thing. Yeah. You know? So and, I'm very uh, I I think they've done an uh, they've been proven over and over again. In fact, they've been right when the DOD press office has been wrong, uh, and then that mm -hmm. their work is proven to be right over the press office. So this kind of comes back to one of the things you said. You know, the New York Times they don't mess around when they vet their information. You know, it, it uh, you know that uh, their information is very solid, and they've been proven to be right over. The, what the Department of Defense has told us, and we're going to get into that uh, some of that with Nick uh, coming up here. When I uh, when I first read that article that Keith Clore put out, 
um, I sent it to Leslie and just asked for her two cents. And she just sent back, you know, she usually is very wordy with me when she replies. And this was, we stand by our reporting. That's right. all she said. And, that and was it. just so for the audience to know, this was Keith Gore wrote an article in The Intercept in which uh, a DOD spokesperson had told him that Lou had no uh, responsibility towards ATIP, uh, the program that he says he ran uh, with the Pentagon. Uh, since his article, uh, George Knapp has released uh, a further unredacted document that Harry Reid uh, had written. It was a letter asking for a special access program um, status for ATIP. And in that list, it, uh, the names of people mostly were redacted, but uh, he, uh, George Knapp unredacted Hal Putoff's name. And uh, Lou Elizondo's name, so you could see they were listed as people who worked on the program. Hal Putoff was, Dr. Hal Putoff was a uh, contractor. I contacted Dr. Hal Putoff, and I told Clore, this is what you should do. If this is what uh, the DOD is telling you, we have documents that say otherwise. Who else would be in the know? The contractors. So ask the contractors, who did you report to? Hal told me Lou definitely was in a tip. Uh, and in fact, he just told John Greenwald, who's been questioning all of this also along with Keith Clore, he gave uh, John Greenwald a more clear answer saying, yes, I was a contractor working for Bigelow Aerospace, uh, uh, the Bass Project, uh, and ATIP. And yes, we were under the leadership of Lou Elizondo. So he was very clear how put off about this. Uh, and we know, you know, from official documents that how uh, put off worked for it. So he would know. And, and he even went on to say, I'm not surprised that the press office wouldn't have this information. They have access to very little information. They weren't part of the program. And that's what we've heard from a lot of different people. And uh, in fact, you know, people have been concerned. Well, why isn't Brian Bender or some of these others like from Politico concerned about that? And he's been criticized as well because he's a mainstream um, journalist, I guess, writing mm -hmm. about this stuff. But he says it's not surprising. He says the same thing as hell. The Public Affairs Department, first of all, they're going to say what they're told to say, not to, that I'm saying there's a conspiracy, but I'm just saying that they're not going to have all the information. They would have to do a lot of research to be able to figure out the ins and outs of this program that we know was kind of being kept hush-hush. Uh, so... Uh, it's not surprising that they wouldn't have all the information. And that's why we've seen this pattern over and over again. The DOD says, no, you know, those those videos were not ours. And then they later say, okay, they were ours. You know, we've seen this over and over again where they've said one thing and then had to change their story later after they received more information because they didn't have that information to begin with. Hmm. I wonder why they're just blatantly saying that you know, the the press people are just blatantly saying, you know, he had no affiliation. You know, I mean, it's this bizarre. is what this is why this conspiracy theory breaks down where, oh, no, you know, I, I keep hearing people even just now. And I won't say who, you know, some guy saying uh, a prominent UFO figure saying, see, this is all part of the government. The D to the stars is part of the, the DOD. This is a DOD effort. Well, why are they arguing back and forth about the facts then? Why is the DOD calling into question the facts that two of the stars are putting forth? That does not show cooperation in any way. And I've said this over and over again. I believe mm. that, you know, they have been put on the back foot. They didn't know Lou Elizondo was going to come out and talk about this. They probably didn't even know this project existed. 
Just imagine you're a press guy in the DOD and all of a sudden you have a flood of media coming to you and saying, what about UFOs? What's this thing about UFOs? You'd be like, I don't know nothing about UFOs. What are you talking about? And so then they've got to try to figure out how to answer all of these questions um, and figure out what's going on. So I'm sure it hasn't been easy for them and I'm sure they, they are not appreciative of the position that they've been put in. Hmm. Well, do they actually go to like a superior and say, you know, what do I do in this situation? I mean, I just wonder how that's Well, you're going to have to listen to my interview with Nick Pope. (laughs) So actually, we talk a lot about this, and he has insight into Mm -hmm. this. So uh, we'll be talking more about this with Nick Pope. Wow. Um, I didn't Are we about out of time? Yeah, we're pretty much out of time. But uh, we've got a lot of other news stories. Those ones that we've talked about, you can see on the front page of openminds.tv. But let's go ahead and get to our interview with Nick. And uh, thank you, Martin Willis of Podcast UFO, joining us once again with the news. You're very welcome, sir. I am so happy, especially at this time, to have back on the show Nick Pope. Hello, Mr. Pope. Hi there. Good to be back. Yes. Uh, you know, we were just talking a-, a second ago when we came online about, uh, you know, we've talked over the years, and there's certainly times where there's it, there's not much going on. Um, it-, it feels almost like we're just talking to each other uh, for the heck of it as opposed to talking to an audience. But right now... I mean, all the eyes are on UFOs. What an interesting time we're finding ourselves in. Absolutely. I wrote a recent op-ed for the New York Post where I said, essentially, this subject has now come out of the fringe and into the mainstream. And uh, as you say, it's interesting to speculate. Uh, Just a couple of years ago, if you'd spoken to people in the UFO community and said to them, where do you want to be? couple of years from now, where, what is your desired end state, short of the rather cliched, my fellow Americans, people of the world, we're not alone. But assuming you're not going to get that, where would you like to be? And people would respond with answers like, well, I'd like to see this subject in the mainstream media. I'd like to see it in the Times, the Post, Politico, and addressed in a serious manner without the little you know, snide jokes and and laughing asides. And and that's what I would like. And that's exactly where we are. And I have the same sentiments. And, uh, you know, I've I've asked some people this, especially like Leslie Kane, uh, I've asked the same question. And her answer was similar to what you had just said. And I felt the same. What's interesting, though, is how great this is for you and I. The majority of the UFO... Uh, community this is uh, when i've posited you know this is a great direction this is the direction we should go i disagree they they want something bigger and grander and you can kind of see many of them feel let down that uh, you know the hangar doors were not opened at area 51 to reveal you know the alien technology that they've been flying around there with with aliens and stuff a lot of people aren't satisfied until we get that 
Yes, and the problem, of course, is that that might be undeliverable, not because it's politically impossible, but because it just doesn't exist. The, the real answer might be that the government doesn't know what this is. The real answer might be that all you are going to get is pretty much what we have now. Uh, the DOD, the US Navy, essentially acknowledging, yes, there is something here. We call it UAP. We can get into the terminology later, I'm sure. Uh, it's in our airspace. Our radar operators track them. Our pilots chase them. We don't know what it is. It's a defense issue. We need to find out. We need to take preventative action. Uh, but yeah, no spaceship in a hangar because we don't have one. But we do have these unauthorized incursions. So so yeah, I, I think you're right. People in the UFO community, in one sense, it's 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 like the the kid that doesn't quite get what they want for Christmas. They get a nice present, but <laughs> because it's not the really big shiny thing they wanted, they're disappointed. Well, you should be grateful for the things that you have and not worry about the things you don't have. It's funny you say that because as you say that, it feels like some of us that uh, have been in this field who have kind of seen uh, or wanted this progression, hoped for it. And it certainly has happened <clears throat> at least at, a, at an increased rate that I, I certainly could never have predicted. But it yeah. is almost like we're, we're parents to the kids. Hey, you know, uh, this is still good. This is still a good present. Yes. And uh, I think if you'd have said to most people in the UFO community prior to December 16th, 2017, what if, what if we delivered this? And as I say, what it, the, the this is the coverage in the Times, the Post, and the Politico. The this is uh, retired intelligence officials and military personnel involved in both investigations, policy work, and encounters speaking out on the record in a serious way. Um, I think most people would have taken that. Sure. It's not disclosure with a big D. It's not the spaceship in a hangar. But I think if you'd have said to people before December 16th, 2017, will you take that? They would have said yes. Yeah, well, you know, and I asked those a lot of a lot of those kind of questions and people surprisingly weren't saying yes so much. They said if that happened, I don't even think I would trust those people. And we are seeing that kind of play out to me. And, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Uh, more and more so, I'm seeing that this really, what is going on right now, is not so much for the UFO community. They're not, um, um, you know, enjoying the gift that they got. They're taking it for granted, perhaps. But more so, this is they're looking for something else. But what this gift is is great for is the general public peaking interests. Uh, incredible uh, venues that this has never really been able to get. Uh, a platform in before or attention from uh, that's what's really I think is ex most exciting about what we see going on well I agree and I think it's a little bit of a slow burner this one mm -hmm. and I think it doesn't have the immediate um, effect that maybe people in the UFO community the deep specialists uh, would hope and expect but what it does what all this constant Background coverage, it's sort of background noise that's gone on since the Times broke the story um, a year and a half ago. 
it what it what it does is it it kind of slowly but surely changes the the debate about this the the background perception that people have and when i say people i don't mean the ufo community now i mean i mean the sort of everybody else who's who's not particularly interested in it sees something from time to time but what they have had for the, for the last year and a half now is a steady stream of articles in these these top level publications that have flipped the narrative 180 degrees so even if they're not necessarily consciously aware of it and talking about it every day as the deep specialists in the ufo community do their perceptions are slowly but surely being changed um managed if if you'll excuse a somewhat conspiratorial word and i think what this does is it means that we are now in a, a different world and and if this subject comes up now to a, a neutral person who's not particularly interested hadn't given it much thought but their response, if they're asked, will be, oh, yeah, yeah, I read something about that. The government does that. Yeah, they know about these things in, in the airspace. Yeah, the, the Navy chase them. The, the radar people track them. Sure, sure, it's, it's, it's real. Not particularly necessarily interested and have the in-depth knowledge. But when people, when people respond like that, that sort of, yeah, I've heard it, I've, I know about this response, then you know that you have moved progress. The, the goalposts have been subtly but majorly moved over a period of, of say, 18 months or so. Mm -hmm. And there is something that you're participating that is along these lines that I think is, is pretty extraordinary in that you have the New York Post doing these videos uh, with uh, John Greenstreet, one of their, their writers, and you talking about UFOs. I think that's pretty incredible for, uh, you know, a, a mainstream paper. Of course, the New York Post can be a bit of uh, tabloidish, but uh, that they would be doing this is pretty extraordinary. Well, I think it's important to cover all ends of the political and demographic and social spectrum with this. So, I, we started off discussing how this had gotten into the Times, the Post, and Politico. But yeah, to get it into something like the New York Post, it's a different audience, but it's an equally important audience. And of course, let's not forget, it It was uh, the host of the basement office, Stephen Greenstreet, who first got that great scoop, and it was published on May 22nd, where the DOD spokesperson confirmed, I think for the first time, that yes, ATIP, and this next bit is the direct quote, did pursue research and investigation into unidentified aerial phenomena. Now, right up until that point, I think people forget, but right up until that point, the skeptics were saying in response to this, ah, yes, but this is just probably next generation aircraft, missiles, and drones. And indeed, if you look at the, the letter that the DIA sent to Congress about this, that's exactly how they tried to spin it. But UAP, there is no getting away from the fact that unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, is the recognized phrase that government, the military, and the intelligence community uses for what the media and the public term UFOs. And I know because I was doing this at the Ministry of Defense back in the 90s, and one can see the UK influence on 
on this, which is is great. So, yeah, what the New York Post are doing is is really good. They have, I think, this series is going to be five or six episodes, and each of them about 25 minutes. Uh, the host, Stephen Greenstreet, and myself just sitting down discussing not just the current story about the Pentagon's ATIP program and the Navy um, in- encounters, but the history of this subject, the how did we get to where we are today story. And I think that's great. And a lot of people, we forget, but a lot of people are coming to this pretty much for the first time. And I look down at the comments when these things get posted on YouTube and the overwhelming response that you get from people is finally somebody's taking this seriously. Thanks people. Mm -hmm. How else has it been received? Have you gotten responses from uh, people you would not have expected, especially this being in New York? Yes, I think, I think so. I think uh, I've received a lot of emails about this. Um, As I say, when they're put up on, YouTube, I think the first episode has over 200,000 hits now, and it's probably on other platforms too. So that only tells part of the story. I think I think when they did this, they weren't quite sure how it was going to be received, but I think everyone is phenomenally pleased. And I have to say that Stephen Greenstreet's done a fantastic job of, of putting this all together. When I flew to New York to meet him and... Um, Sort of get get together with him. He came armed with absolutely reams and reams of paper on all this. He he had done a deep dive into the history of this subject. He dug up documents and clips that uh, I say even deep specialists in in this subject probably couldn't necessarily put their their hands on and and. It's getting this subject to a different and new audience. And that's what it's all about. I think, I think in all of this, we should forget that we, we should not forget that there are two important things. The message is, of course, hugely important, but so is the audience. There's no point just preaching to the choir with all of this. It's all about getting it to a new and different audience, changing the debate, um, changing people's perception of this, not just in the UFO community, but right across society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree 100%, and that's what's exciting. I think uh, Stephen is uh, an exciting person. Uh, you know, he's a lot of fun to see him react to to what your discussions, and uh, he's also obviously very well-versed, and like you said, started right off the bat with this uh, major revelation, this comment from the DOD. So we'll get it more into it. So let's, I guess, get more wonky, get into the weeds here, but uh, I guess we'll go kind of backwards. Just a bit ago, you talked about how the U.S. took the U.K.'s lead. So you think that uh, they noticed you all were using this term UAP back in the 90s and adopted that? Yes. Now, I can't claim credit for inventing the phrase UAP. It had been around for a while. But there's no getting away from the fact that in the early 90s, we at the Ministry of Defense in the U.K., sat down and deliberately strategized this. And we, we said, look, not, not for the media and the public, but internally for the defense community, for the intelligence community audience, we wanted to reframe the debate by changing the language. And I, I think you and I have discussed some parts of this before. We effectively ditched 
the pop culture baggage that came with the term UFO by replacing it with UAP. Now, I briefed that certainly to a, a US political, military and intelligence community audience in June of 2011 in in DC. And and it's it's a matter of record that that obviously even people like Hillary Clinton suddenly started saying in her media interviews about this, no, no, there's a, a new term for this. It's not UFO anymore, it's UAP. But it, it wasn't just Clinton. It clearly got into the, the system. And I don't want to claim uh, undue UK influence here <laughs> or, or, or kind of reach in terms of ATIP. I will let the people involved with ATIP speak to that themselves but again there's no getting away from the fact that if you look for example just at the use of the word uap we were doing that in in the ministry of defense in the 90s if you look at harry reed's all important uh, june 24 2009 letter to william lynn the third deputy secretary of defense um, one of the very few pieces of, of paperwork that we still have on the ATIP program, but probably one of the most important, if not the most important. Um, you can see, now, I, I, not a lot of people have actually done this, but if you look at some of the emerging disruptive technologies that that Harry Reid talks about, you'll see a clear parallel between the language that Harry Reid uses and the language that we used in the Ministry of Defense in an intelligence assessment of the UFO phenomenon that was codenamed Project Condine. Now, the official um, title of that study, Project Condine, was unidentified aerial phenomena in the UK air defense region. A bit of a mouthful, I know, but there are clear parallels, which not many people have, I, I think, picked up on in the language there. So again, I, I'll let the ATIP people speak to this themselves, and I don't want to make inflated claims, but the language, the, the similarity in the language is, is interesting. And it's also interesting that Harry Reid in that letter talks, for example, about what he terms the human interface and human effects aspect of the ATIP program. When again, this is something that we were doing in Project Condine in relation to the Rendlesham Forest incident, where we were talking about prolonged exposure to what we termed UAP radiation. So this, again, I think is an important part of the story, uh, and, and the full story has yet to emerge. I think we're going to be hearing more about this in the next few weeks, I mm -hmm. suspect. But, but I, I wanted to put it on the record, and I've certainly done so in a couple of interviews and in an article that the UK national daily newspaper Metro published a few, few weeks ago. Now, uh, I, I want to get into that, but it's great that you brought up Condine uh, because that was put together by the Defense Intelligence Staff. 
And uh, a story that you uh, put out just recently, and this normally would be a big story in the UFO community, but of course it's gotten overlooked by everything that, that's been going on, uh, that finally a couple of these last UFO files, the, the UK uh, DOD set, or def- uh, Ministry of Defense said they had released all their UFO files. It turned out that they, uh, in 2008, turned out that they hadn't. Um, there were still some stragglers, and it's taken them years to get these documents out. And finally, the last two files come out. And you found something really interesting, this infighting going on between uh, the defense intelligence staff and, uh, and others. Tell us uh, about what you found in those files. Well, it was interesting, and uh, you make um, a, a, a very important point, actually, that perhaps this story didn't get the publicity that it would have. I think there are two reasons for that. Firstly, it's been overshadowed, understandably, by by the bigger and still unfolding story of the ATIP program and the U.S. Navy interaction with this phenomenon and the new Navy guidance to their pilots and radar operators and other personnel about this. The other reason why I don't think this story made quite the media splash that that it might have is is that in one sense, it looks like we've, we've had this story before, and we have. The Ministry of Defense in June 2013 announced that they had completed the program to declassify and release the files. Well, as you rightly point out, they hadn't. They then discovered further files that um, had not been released. They went backwards and forwards between the Ministry of Defense and the National Archives in the UK. Again, as you say, literally for years. And interestingly, Rendlesham Forest witness John Burroughs played arguably I think the key role in discovering or or lobbying the Ministry of Defense to release these further files, but it still, even from that, took took some years. And in all, the program has taken 11 years. I mean, I left the Ministry of Defense in 2006. In 2008, as I think you know because we've discussed it, uh, I came out of retirement to help with this. program and i i actually made the official announcement on the national archives website i've probably done literally thousands of interviews over the last 11 years but it does have a sense of deja vu about it because people correctly recall having read from june 2013 onwards yes yes this is the last of the files and of course every every couple of years uh, there was a oh well here are a few extra ones we've discovered. Now we really do have, I think, the last of them. And yes, this dogfight, this skeptic versus believer dogfight going on in the Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom between the defense intelligence staff who wanted to do much more in-depth research and investigation into this from a scientific and technical intelligence point, and the policy division on UFOs, who who handled the way that this subject was was viewed and investigated and researched across government, the policy division wanted to back off, and were far more worried about how this would be perceived in the British Parliament and the media, for example, whether it would 
whether it would contradict statements previously made by defense ministers, including the Secretary of State for Defense, that we don't really put much resources into this. And and then something like Project Condine comes along, and wait a minute, this is effectively an intelligence assessment of the phenomenon. So the files show this story of the fundamental breakdown in relations between the two parts of the ministry who were supposed to be cooperating on this. Now, I I say not guilty from a personal point of view before you ask me. When I was there, <laughs> because of my high security clearance, my need to know, and my my good working relationship with colleagues in the defense intelligence staff, we didn't have any of this. It was seamless. We were in and out of each other's offices, um, you know, every week, swapping ideas, plotting how we would take this forward. Uh, it was my opposite number and I who sat down and, and changed UFO to UAP. And, and all this is in the files, by the way. But, but yes, it, it was unfortunate that for a number of reasons, after I left, there was this breakdown in relations. And it, it, if it wasn't so dire in terms of the defense and national security implications, it would also, it would almost be comedic. I mean, it was almost literally by the end of, of the relationship, they, they weren't even talking to each other. Wow. So we've got to take a break, but we're going to get more into this because there are a lot of parallels with uh, what's going on, what's being revealed in the television show about uh, To the Stars and, and Elizondo and this Pentagon program, uh, but also some of the, the infighting between departments. There's just a lot of parallels between what you all uh, experienced or did in the UK and what's going on now, and we'll get into that after the break. We're going to take a short break for those of you listening on a radio show or program. You'll hear commercials. For the rest of you, you'll hear a short musical interlude, and we'll be right back with Nick Pope. back this is your host alejandro rojas you're listening to open mind gfo radio and i'm talking to nick pope formerly of the ministry of defense ufo desk that's that's how we call it but um the ufo desk so some of the controversies going on right now that parallel what you used to do and we'll get this will all get into what we were just talking about uh as well but one of these controversies is people are arguing that uh, uh lou elizondo who worked for you know atip ran it this term ran it and people uh give you uh a lot of heck about this in fact i get it because they're like why do you you to say Nick is so great when he says he ran the UFO desk that uh, there was no big department he was in charge of. 
and, and people are kind of saying, Lou, the same thing. You're saying you ran this ATIP thing. It was a, it was smaller, you know. Debating the semantics of the term ran, do you feel uh, there's a similarity in the attacks against Elizondo uh, that you've received for in these uh, same kind of accusations? Yes, there is. And in fact, Lou and I have discussed this this very issue with a kind of wry smile and a laugh. I, I think he's beginning to to experience what what I've experienced for for the the last few years. Sometimes, um, I mean, we we in the UK, for example, I, and I know the the parallels are uncanny. Remember all the debate about what what ATIP was actually called, whether it was aerospace or aviation, whether there was an extra and in the title somewhere, what what the relationship was between ATIP and ORSAP. I had exactly the same in the UK. Was it the UFO project? Was it the UFO desk? Was it the UFO program? Uh, Technically, it was neither because we didn't, unlike the US with Blue Book, we didn't actually give it a name. So it was a work stream that was embedded in a division called Secretariat Air Staff. But Secretariat Air Staff is meaningless to people outside the department. So one has to communicate through through nicknames and colloquialisms. Uh, now, I'm fortunate. I, I'm, I'm fortunate in that, of course, uh, for anyone that doubted my position, not only has it now been confirmed by the British Parliament, but, of course, as we've just discussed before the break, some somewhere in the region of 60,000 pages of documents pertaining to my old job have now been declassified and released. And uh, I, I tell you, several hundred of them still have my name on, even though I think they were supposed to redact them. But, you know, never mind. It's it's all out there. And I'm sure that as time goes by, Lou will be completely vindicated by by similar disclosures. I think that there are still hundreds, if not thousands, of ATIP-related Freedom of Information Act requests in the pipeline. I've heard um, estimates that it will be 2020, maybe 2021, before all of those are necessarily dealt with with full responses. But when they do, I'm sure we're going to find Lou's name all over this, just just as we found in the UK. I mean, not only not only am I mentioned in these files, as I say, I I wrote a large proportion of them, and I think that's that's what we're going to find with Lou. But here's the other point. I think people sometimes seem to forget a couple of things. I I just uh, sent a tweet this morning pointing out this very thing. For anyone who says, well, look, um, a DOD press officer has now made this statement and and doesn't this call into question um, Lou's role in relation to ATIP, whether he ran it or whether he he was simply uh, somebody who was on it or had access to it or however you want to describe it. You know, we can get too bogged down in the, the words. If you had gone, this is my point, if you had gone to the DOD before December 2017 and asked them about this, you wouldn't have got anything other than the line that the subject wasn't investigated um, by by the department. So so let's not get too hung up on on what public affairs officers and and press officers say. And let's also not kid ourselves that 
any of those people are going to have anything other than a brief sheet of paper that they're given by the subject matter expert saying, this is your line to take. They're not going to have actual access into those intelligence programs, and rightly so. Exactly. I, I think that you make a great point. In fact, that's exactly what I was going to bring up next is your tweet from this morning, which I thought was great and uh, and brings us back to reality. Just like you said, yeah, before December 2017, they were telling us there was no program. So uh, and, and plus your perspective on this is important because you understand uh, bureaucracy. Uh, but there and. You know, kind of getting back to your point, how you and Lou have found yourself in a similar position, there actually is an advantage that Lou has in a way in that he has a lot of colleagues that have kind of coming out uh, as part of all of this, such as contractors like uh, David, uh, Eric Davis or Hal Putoff, uh, who have talked about working with Lou with his program, or you have, you know, people like Chris Mellon, who has mentioned that he uh, worked with Lou uh, during the ATIP period of time in trying to get this information to the Secretary of Defense. So at least he even, you know, beyond just these these uh, statements from the DOD, has uh, a host of very credible characters, you know, backing him um, that he was working in this program. Absolutely. Almost every statement from anyone involved in this, whether it was at a governmental level or a contractor level, has said, hey, it was Lou sitting across the desk as, as the, the guy in government that we had to deal with on this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can have a debate about whether he ran it or was director of it, but there's no getting away from the fact that if anything went on with ATIP, it was Lou Elizondo who was the guy in the room at mm -hmm. the meetings. He was the guy on the distribution list of the, the, the documents. So, you know, let's not get too hang, hung up on on whether it was a formal program or a project or a work stream or, or whatever it was. And look, I've worked in that world myself. In, in intelligence, the whole point often is that you try and blur the lines. The whole point is that you try to minimize the paper trail. The whole point is that very often you're keeping this off the radar of people in your own department even. Mm -hmm. Because very often what people don't get is that, that projects like this are incredibly vulnerable uh, in, in an environment where all sorts of managers are competing for limited resources and access to senior managers. Everyone's after the same pot of money. And and, you know, if you if you get a, a, a chance to, to kind of kill off somebody else's program at the expense of yours or or subsume somebody's program under your own authority, I mean, this sort of thing goes on all the time. People have this mistaken view that everything in in government is is all homogenous and everyone's kind of marching in the same direction. Absolutely not. It's often a case that people work in silos, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, and then you, you factor in that this was not only highly classified, but deeply sensitive politically in terms of, of just this whole subject being such a hot potato. It doesn't surprise me that it's a little bit difficult for journalists and bloggers and people making FOI requests to get to the bottom of every last question about this. And that's exactly the way that people running those sorts of programs designed it.
Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's why I think your perspective is really important in this because you have this background uh, with press also. Certainly, uh, when you were helping the MOD with the release of these final files, it was kind of a PR effort, right, to, to, to release it, it all was, of and mm-hmm. it, it was, and just let me go back and make one more point about press officers. I've done this. I, I've... I've been the subject matter expert briefing the press office on on this, on not just UFOs, but on some some other unrelated uh, defense business. And there's a standard format for it in in the UK, where I'm I'm virtually certain that you can read this across to the US. What you do is you you on any given subject, you give the press officer a, what what's called a key message. And this is the message that you want the media to run. And sometimes it's playing up a good news story or playing down a bad news story. And you have this key message that you want to get across. And then you have what are called supporting lines to take, which are sometimes defensive. In other words, you only raise them if if the journalist actually asks. But these are very carefully and cleverly crafted, and they are given to the press officers. And the press officers, of course, haven't been working on these programs. They are just given this brief to speak from. And their job is to get this key message across so that the story runs in a way favorable to the way in which the department wants it to come out. End of story. Right. It's their way to keep some uh, modicum uh, of, of control on the message, uh, especially in this case where it appears, I mean, there's some, uh, We, like you just said, the government isn't a bunch of people who are all headed in the same direction. Uh, you know, you talked about in these recent UK files, there was apparent, uh, you know, arguments between these couple of departments. And it seems like we have quite a bit of that going on uh, as this ATIP story develops uh, as well. Uh, you have, you know, the Navy being very cooperative, working with the History Channel on this television show. Uh, but then you have the DOD PR department uh, or the public affairs kind of like, you know, throwing a, a wrench in things a bit. And honestly, they're kind of caught under the gun. I'm sure, you know, Lou didn't give them a heads up. Hey, guys, I'm going to be talking about this. UFO program you didn't know, so get prepared for an avalanche of questions and and FOIA requests. So uh, they're kind of under the gun, and we've seen over and over again they've made these these statements, these quick statements, and then had to retract them or or adjust them as time has gone on. Yes, and let's not forget that any time they wanted to, the Navy could have killed this story by saying, "Look, people." When we use phrases like unauthorized and or unidentified aircraft, we 100% mean conventional aircraft, missiles, and drones. We don't necessarily say that we can identify all of them at this stage, but, but we are 100% certain that this is just aircraft, missiles, and drones. And yet that's not what they say. It's as if they deliberately go that step further and uh, you're, you're right to point out the mixed messages that we've been getting, because, for example, the DIA, when they wrote to Congress about this, they very much used the language of um, far-term aviation uh, threats. 
But then the US Navy, just as you think that the, the government have got that particular genie back into the bottle by, by talking about this in terms of, of aircraft, missiles and drones, the US Navy upset the apple cart by, by coming out with this bombshell statement. Um, yes, we did pursue research and investigation into unidentified aerial phenomena. So it's almost as if they've they've carefully tried to manage this and spin it one way. And then another part of, of the system, in this case, the US Navy, says, you know what, that's, that's not right. And we're not going to let that stand. And they go and reignite the UFO speculation by throwing this bombshell phrase UAP right back into the center of the stage. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you make of this? So, because uh, there's another player here that's been mostly very silent, although they've had a, a recent statement that I think is very interesting. But that's the Air Force. When the Navy said they were going to come up with guidelines, they said that we, the Navy and the Air Force, take this very seriously. I, I don't think that the, them including the Air Force in their statement was a mistake. It seems very calculated. But what for? Does it seem like they were trying to drag the Air Force into this conversation, who obviously has not inserted themselves in any way at this point? Yes, I, I think uh, if, if I was in the United States Air Force right now, I'd be, be pretty annoyed with the Navy because I think <laughs> my strategy would be let's try and keep out of this. Uh, and, and then you find another branch of the military kind of dragging you in into the spotlight and, and out of the shadows with this. And my goodness, if I in my 21 years in the UK Ministry of Defense, uh, only three years on the UFO issue, but but if I had a dollar for every time some issue of inter-service rivalry came up, I would have a lot of dollars. And <laughs> this, it's an interesting angle. Some of the unasked questions about this are worth getting into. One, one is, to what extent does inter-service rivalry, including, and this probably is a whole nother show, but including ideas about a space force, how does that play into this debate? How much, if any, of what we're seeing now is about jockeying for position and scrambling for resources in a future battle space that, that is clearly going to be critical in any future war? That's one, one of the big, frankly, unasked questions about this right that's a good point and and to this just real quick don't forget your other point is that we at least have heard a little bit of inkling and george knapp has referred to this that some of that budget was essentially stolen away is probably not the right term but that someone uh just like you're talking about was successful in being able to pull some of those funds their way yes i i mean my goodness some of the dog fights in the uk about this were were huge. I mean, for example, the UK's strategic nuclear deterrent, the Royal Air Force said, we should have this, it should be delivered by long range bombers. The Navy said, no, no, you should put this on on ballistic missile submarines. And the Navy, of course, won out. But this was this was billion dollar uh, dogfight over resources and influence at the highest level. And so how much of that 
is a factor. I think one of the other big unasked questions about this, and I don't necessarily claim to have an answer, but but sometimes it's it's the questions that are important, is how is all this playing out in Russia and China? Mm. It it will not have escaped the leadership in Russia and China that for the last 18 months or so, the, the US has kind of done a 180 degree flip on this, that after decades of downplaying and denying this, it's almost as if they're now pushing it themselves. As, as I say, just as you think they've got it back into the box, they reignite the debate by using phrases like UAP that they know are going to be like a red rank to a bull. What is the leadership in Russia and China asking their military and intelligence chiefs? And to what extent is, is that part of the story here? So I think, I think there are some big aspects of this. We all get bogged down in, oh, look at those, look at those three videos. And that's very important and interesting. But there are other aspects to this, the geopolitical aspects that we haven't really kind of talked through yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think as this unfolds, especially people that are, are, are more savvy around those sort of topics will begin to ask those questions. And those conversations are beginning. So to get to your last point, no doubt Russia and China are very uh, aware of American perceptions, or at least very concerned uh, actively in America's perceptions of their take technological capabilities. And uh, that's where the Air Force has come in. So Task and Purpose uh, wrote an article recently where they were debating, you know, uh, and talking about could these be drones from China and Russia? And in fact, they had a Navy spokesperson say, it's possible. We don't know yet. We're still looking into it. And then an Air Force spokesperson, and this is the only uh, instance I'm aware of, you may be aware of others, that the Air Force has chimed in. And they said, no, that's probably Probably not the case. Uh, they said any drone that could fly from Russia or China to the United States East Coast would have to be at least as large as an MQ-9 Reaper, very big. And the data link used to fly the aircraft would be detectable. So he's saying that, well, we don't know what these things are, but they're probably not uh, Russia and Chinese, Chinese drones. Well, it's all smoke and mirrors, and I don't want to go too far down this road for obvious reasons, but sometimes... In intelligence work, the trick is to hide a capability that you do have and to make the other side think you have a capability that you don't have. Right. So, so again, there's, there's that to factor in. But here's, here's one other interesting point about this, and it goes back to your point about how little we've heard from, from the, the Air Force as opposed to the Navy. Again, there's no getting away from the fact that as we look at our troubled world today – so many of the major potential flashpoints are obviously going to involve naval forces, whether it's, it's the East China Sea and the Spratly Islands, whether it's the Strait of Hormuz, whether it's the Baltic, whether it's the Black Sea. But it's going to be the Navy in the front line of a lot of this. And again, I can't help but wonder, is that something to factor into all this? Mm -hmm. That's another great point. So moving on to another topic. Um, 
And this was actually, when I originally uh, scheduled this, going to be the main topic, but there's so much that has happened that I've really been enjoying the, I think, a very important conversation we've been having thus far. But you had also written an article about, uh, you know, the New York Times had mentioned that uh, ATIP had looked into the physical effects of, of, of people. And I even asked this of Lou Elizondo in uh, my interview with him recently. You know, it, there's a Rendlesham factor into that. And he said, uh, essentially, no comment. Watch the show. So apparently they're going to address this. But uh, you have kind of uh, of gone there. And the Condon report, as you said, John Burroughs, who's one of the witnesses in Rendlesham, in fact, at the UFO Congress, we gave him an award for the work that you had mentioned earlier, getting uh, finding out about these other files. But uh, he has uh, written or at least spoken quite a bit about how, you know, in that Condon report, they had talked about UAP effects uh, on them, in particular at Rendlesham. Uh, so it seems that that uh, it wasn't just Condon. Condon was kind of speculative, but that there is actual physical work going on in studying these individuals. Yes, there is. Now, again, I had no involvement in in the ATIP program, obviously, and I'm I'm not going to attempt to speak for for anyone involved with that. They they can you know discuss what what they they like in relation to their work. I, I certainly uh, was, was not cleared for any of that. And, and I had pretty much left the MOD anyway by, by the time that all came to fruition. What I will say is this, it goes back to what Harry Reid termed as the human interface and human effects aspects of this. And I, I have, I'll, I'll, be, I'll choose my words carefully because this is a very sensitive area. But essentially, um, there is no doubt in my mind that a number of people who claim to have had close encounters, some of whom were involved in military events like the Rendlesham Forest incident, um, have been approached over the years and asked, for example, to provide blood and DNA samples. And this was, I think, represented to them as being a scientific study, which was probably perfectly true, but I think raises the question, was the ultimate customer government and, and was ATIP involved in any of that? Now, I'm not going to answer that question and I'm going to, you know, I, I'm not involved in the unidentified TV show. I had no involvement in the ATIP program, but again, I think there, there's no avoiding the fact that some, some people have been looked at in relation to that. And the roots of some of this, yes, were in Condine. I mean, there was, there was that throwaway line in Condine's final report where it speculated that the Rendlesham Forest witnesses had probably been exposed to UAP radiation for longer time periods than normal. And I know that there have been at least two, maybe three, possibly more settlements with the VA, that, that some of which involved intervention by US senators. I, again, the sensitivity about this, and I can't, I can't get into the full story, but, but again, a lot of this has gone on, and I think we'll be finding out some more about this over the next few weeks and months. But clearly, for legal and ethical reasons and reasons of, of classification, I want to err on the side of caution where it comes to, to this 
most, I suppose, provocative and controversial aspect, the human interface and human effects aspects. I mean, some people have literally said to me, is this the US government um, studying even alien abductees? And I, I'm, I'm not going to answer that. I'm, I'm just going to let, let the cards fall where they may. Exactly. Yeah, those those answers still have yet to be revealed. And and like Lou had said, it, it turns out it seems as though we're going to get more of that in the television show. So luckily, we're not going to have to wait too long to at least get some more information on that. And, and I'm not sure if you're aware, I actually, in my latest interview with Eric Davis, uh, one of the contractors, a physicist with uh, uh, ATIP or with, uh, he's worked with Bigelow and all kinds of other people, but he admitted, you know, he had some uh, things happen to him at the Skinwalker Ranch. And uh, they had the group had felt he was kind of a magnet for these this phenomena and that he had undergone testing. He had given them samples. So uh, to your point, to also show that, you know, you're not the only one talking about this. That Eric Davis himself has also uh, mentioned he he gave samples. Right. Yes. As I say, I, I think we'll be hearing a lot more about this this side of it. But of course, not least because of the scandal that followed the MK Ultra um, mm-hmm. situation, there are extreme sensitivities when it comes to to this, and there are also sensitivities in regard discussing individuals' medical cases un, under HIPAA and such like. So again, there are a number of reasons why I don't want to go too far down this road, except to say to people, watch this space. Right, exactly. And uh, I think you're right. And I think that people haven't gotten their heads around it yet. They don't know what to make of it because they haven't been speaking much about it. So I was even sort of surprised that it would be featured on the show. Well, I don't know what what they're they're going to be able to come up with on on that in a public arena. I mean, of course, clearly, I know not least from personal personal discussion that there is still a very difficult line that that Lou has to tread, and some of this is is doubtless still fairly highly classified and or sensitive, probably both. So, mm-hmm. so yes, I hope we'll we'll get more but goes back to the point we were discussing about press officers don't necessarily expect when it comes to intelligence programs that that we'll be able to get everything on a tv show or from a press officer right so there's uh some you know you're you're telling people a clue right there take a look pay attention to this this the human uh the physical testing sort of aspects of all of this do you have any other uh, sort of parting predictions or advice. Hey, keep an eye out on on this area that uh, or or that. I, I think I would only reiterate to keep an eye on some of the Freedom of Information Act requests that are still in the system. Some of them are fairly bland, catch-all requests. Please, please send me all your information on ATIP. But some of the the rather more narrowly focused, cleverly crafted ones, I think you're going to get into some fairly interesting areas. And it's, it's where there are these throwaway lines. Like, for example, if, if there is a map of hotspots, for example, which, which I've heard kind of as, as one point, mm-hmm. well, where are the data that populated that map? If there is 
uh, in the ATIP program, uh, a sort of, what was it, 280-page document, a sort of crown jewels. Where, where is that dossier? So, so there are some very specific things that have been mentioned that most people might have forgotten, but not everyone has. And, and I think we, we might be hearing more about some of these sorts of things. So one of the things I think it, it staggers me how little official paperwork we yet have on ATIP. As I mentioned, we have Harry Reid's 2009 letter uh, to William Lynn III. We have some of the contractual solicitation documents. We have the DIA letter to Congress about the, um, the, the various studies that were undertaken. But we don't have much more. But there's no doubt in my mind, even notwithstanding my point that you try and suppress the paper trail where you can, but government is what it is, and uh, there, there will definitely be, despite that intention to sometimes generate as little paperwork as you can, and where you do generate it, to, to make sure that it doesn't come out to, to press officers and bloggers and UFO community people, uh, there will be some some material that inevitably has to come out, just because the, the FOI requests are sufficiently you know, well-crafted. So, so keep an eye on that. I think that's a really great point. I mean, this is very fertile ground. We know it exists. And as we've seen in the past, and even as you all uh, had experienced in the UK, that uh, even the most tightly held records, it takes time, but eventually we'll start to see more. So this may play out just like we just got, you know, these last files from the UK. The the whole release of, of files will probably be a, a slow process that'll go on for the next few years. Absolutely. But don't rule out some left field uh, revelation that takes everyone by surprise, whether it's a new individual associated with some of this coming forward and speaking out or something that takes the debate off in an unexpected direction. I mean, you... There are aspects to this. We've seen the videos, for example, the Navy jets chasing the UFOs. We've heard talk of metamaterials. So there, there are kind of, and, and we've discussed the human effects. Don't be surprised if something else that didn't previously have visibility suddenly explodes into the public consciousness. I agree. Probably multiple something else's. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> well, thank you so very, very, very much for doing this interview. This has been incredible. Uh, every time we talk to you, it, it's so incredibly enlightening, uh, and it demonstrates, you know, the importance of, of input from people who have had uh, the experience to be able to have some more insight into all of this for us. So thank you for once again uh, coming on the show. Thank you very much. And I guess I'll be seeing you in AlienCon, right, in just a week. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. All it's right. going to be fascinating and fun. <laughs> yep. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye now. Thank you so much to Nick Pope for joining us once again. Uh, he's always awesome. It's always wonderful to have him on the show because uh, the insight that he lends, having been kind of a Lou Elizondo in the UK, you know, uh, someone who was on the inside and doing this UFO investigative work for the government, and then also doing the public end as well, especially in these times, gives us invaluable insight into what is going on here so we can interpret 
all of these uh, new revelations and new uh, things that are happening with, with all of this. However, we're not done. I have a special bonus audio here. So I got a contact from Anthony LaPay, and there were some things he wanted to share with us regarding Unidentified. LaPay is the executive producer and showrunner for Unidentified Inside America's uh, UFO Investigation. This is the show that is covering uh, Tom DeLonge's To the Stars and also uh, the ATIP organization uh, within the Pentagon and, of course, the guy who used to run it, Lou Elizondo. Uh, the other guy that we talk about here is Chris Mellon, who's part of To the Stars and also in the show. He is the guy who is the former United States Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and then later for Security and Information Operations. So this is a guy who served as a staff director for the United States Senate Committee on Intelligence. So he's been in Washington sharing intelligence and information for a long time, which is really important when it comes to some of the topics that we're going to talk with uh, Anthony about here. The other thing I wanted to remind you all is if you haven't seen the show or you're not, you don't remember this part, uh, episode three on Unidentified, of course, I've interviewed Chris Day, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Kevin Day. And Kevin Day was the radar operator, the supervisor on the Nimitz, and he had told them an area to go check out uh, at near where the Nimitz encounter happened uh, that uh, was essentially Guadalupe Island off the coast of Mexico, and that's where they go in Episode 3. So we'll talk about Episode 3 and then some really important upcoming information that's coming up on Unidentified. So uh, check out this interview with Anthony LePay. Alejandro, how are you? Good. How are you? I am great. It's exciting times. It is really exciting. So first off, I want to apologize because I was I was informed, and I think it was by a, a French-Canadian, that I had been pronouncing your name wrong last time we talked, and it's Anthony LaPay. Oui. Which is, it's a very pretty C- name. Correct them I'm Thank glad you. they corrected me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, before we talked, I don't think the show had aired yet, and now it has. Uh, what's the response been like? It's been really incredible. Uh, people, uh, you know, just from the, the the mainstream media catching on. I mean, the whole conversation uh, almost overnight ha- has radically changed. Uh, you know, you, you're seeing things like the Washington Post running. Uh, opinion pieces saying, hey, we got to talk about UFOs, the Atlantic, Bloomberg. I mean, it's been it's been really wild. So it's very gratifying uh, to see that, uh, you know, we've kind of cracked open the conversation. That was really all we really wanted to do in some in some degree. It's really exciting, and it's it's so different. It, it's very surreal to watch it. First of all, to see so many items that I've written about coming to, to the screen, my most favorite stuff that I've looked into. Um, but second of all, it spills over in a way that other shows don't. So, for instance, reality shows kind of have their followings, but they don't make you know the, the news like you just referenced and especially on really important topics, I mean, policy when it comes to uh, the Navy or, or some of these other items and, and articles that have popped up. Yeah, and that's kind of the turn that the series is going to be taking in this upcoming week is you're going to see the beginnings of a chain of events that, again, this is 
a wholly my unofficial opinion. I, I cannot prove the following, but mm-hmm. I, and I think people sh- can make up their own minds. But the chain of events that you'll see that starts in this Friday's episode where Lou Elizondo and uh, retired commander David Fravor go and meet a lieutenant named Lieutenant Ryan Graves, uh, an F-18 fighter pilot from the Theodore Roosevelt, and he tells his story for the first time. The chain of events that you see unfold in that episode and then in the following episodes, I believe, are directly related to both this larger conversation, obviously, we saw the New York, the, the, you know, we uh, introduced them to the New York Times. They, the New York Times wrote the big article, but also the Navy changing their policy. I believe it was the events of the Theodore Roosevelt that pushed the Navy to, uh, and many of your viewers, pro- uh, listeners probably know about this, but the, you know, in April of this year, the Navy announced new guidelines for reporting of UFOs and essentially tacitly admitted that uh, what these things are are not our own, meaning uh, a U.S. military operation. Um, that And that led to this weekend's sort of mind-blowing blockbuster news that President Trump has been briefed on these recent events um, and, uh, is, as he said, is going to be monitoring it closely, whatever that means. But... Um, I believe the, the, there is a direct line, um, and you'll see that unfold beginning this Friday. Which is really exciting. Of course, you have the president saying he said he had a short brief, so uh, who knows how much information he got. Uh, apparently not enough to convince him that uh, you know UFOs are, are a real thing, although he defers to the pilots. However, you know the conversations, the level that the, the conversation is reached, we had in, in this article, Task and Purpose, where... The Navy uh, spokesperson kind of says, well, it could be Chinese or Russians. We're, we're still not sure. We're looking into it. But then the Air Force, and this is the first time I've seen the Air Force kind of pipe in on the conversation, says, well, we don't think it is Russian or Chinese drones. I think we think that uh, it, they wouldn't have the capability and, you know, the nature of the uh, the technology that would be used is not what's demonstrated in these videos sort of thing. Uh so it's really excited. I mean, it's inspired this conversation between the Navy and UFO, or the Navy and the Air Force about yeah. UFOs. That Air Force, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up. That Air Force statement, which actually hasn't gotten a lot of attention outside of, I think, a lot of the UFO circles and the military circles, that statement by that Air Force general was major. Uh, it's a major general, actually, I think you said it. Uh, but, you know, that is, is a really interesting piece of the puzzle because now you have the Navy saying it is not us. They're using the term UAP, which, as Nick Pope uh, has, has, you know, explained, that was a term that was developed uh, when he was at the Ministry of Defense uh, in the UK to to sort of reframe and talk about UFOs in a different way, but has become the parlance in the uh, intelligence and military community to refer to this phenomenon that's unidentified aerial phenomenon. So the fact that the Navy is using that term publicly, we all know that they've, they've been using it, you know, within the realm of ATIP, et cetera. But the fact that they're using it publicly and, and essentially are saying that these are not our own 
They're not, we're not, the Navy is saying we're not experiencing unknown craft of our own making, obviously. And then you have the Air Force uh, general coming out and saying they don't believe that the Chinese or the Russians have the capability. I mean, it really, it, by process of elimination, you end up in a very interesting place. Mm-hmm. Now, writing... Uh, kind of along these lines, writing about UFOs for, for so long, it's not surprising to me that there's all these conspiracies kind of crop up. But what you've been demonstrating in the show is more of a bottom-up effort. And uh, some of these guys, like Chris Mellon, uh, has been working with Bob Bigelow, and they've been working on trying to get UFOs serious for a long time. Uh, of course, we never knew that Lou Elizondo was behind the scenes doing this right. uh, because that was secret for so long. So you really get the sense, and, and I've asked all of these major, these players, including some of the contractors like Dr. Hal Putoff or Dr. Eric Davis, you know, is that what this is, an effort that you all have done to try to get this information out, as opposed to the this belief among many that uh, it's a top-down, that there's some kind of hidden hand that is kind of controlling all of this. And maybe we've talked about this before, but uh, even though you've been presenting how this is all happening, it seems like people are like, yeah, but still, you know, there's somebody behind the scenes. What? Did, how do you react? Or what, what is... You know, I think, I mean, I think Chris Mellon says this at one point in the show, it's hard to prove a negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no evidence that there is someone pulling the strings uh, behind Chris Mellon uh, in terms of what he's doing. And you will see that in this episode. I don't want to give too much away what happens. But what you're going to see in this episode is the p- process by which Lieutenant Graves' testimony comes to Washington. That's the, that's that's what. Uh, it's not just us getting Lieutenant Graves and Lieutenant Okoyan uh, talking on the record. What you're going to see is how Lou and Chris are working behind the scenes to get people aware of what's going on. Because that's the thing that that I really learned doing this process, and I think it's hard for pe- a lot of people to understand. There's no such thing as the U.S. government. There are so many different agencies, and there's so many different people, so many different people with different levels of knowledge about what's going on here. Um, and what you're going to see in this episode and what you see unfold in the rest of the episodes is uh, Congress, the, the members of Congress who are now taking uh, interest in this, and unfortunately I can't share the names that's all you know been told to me off the record, but the members of Congress who are now paying attention to this, you know, these guys were pretty out of the loop, it seems, on what was going on. And a lot of people, you know, I think a lot of people don't really realize what uh, ATIP was, at least as far as I can tell, was a very siloed, compartmentalized uh, program. This wasn't, you know, not that many people were aware of what was going on. And a lot of these reports you know, and I think because of the politics of the chain of command, just, you know, they don't spread. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, talk about, well, there were 5,000 people on the USS Nimitz, and there's probably the same amount on the Theodore Roosevelt. But those reports of those pilots, you know, those are very small cadre of dudes in these squadrons. You know, I spoke to many pilots 
in Lieutenant Graves, uh, not many. I spoke to five other pilots. I don't want to overstate it. When I say many, I spoke to five other pilots in Lieutenant Graves squadron who wouldn't go on camera. And you'll see actually some of that process by which uh, Elizondo was trying to get, and we, uh, we were in contact with the guy who was the weapon systems operator whose voice you hear in the two uh, Theodore Roosevelt videos. He was going to come on camera and then kind of backed out. I spoke to several other guys in that squadron, all of whom confirmed the basic scope of that story. Um, but not. I also spoke to a higher-up guy on the Roosevelt, and he wasn't even – this is a really interesting story. I spoke to a guy – uh, who was a much higher ranking uh, officer on the Roosevelt, who was not aware of the sightings that were going on over 2014 and 2015, um, who was a former pilot, but he told us a story uh, off the record of an incident he had in an earlier workup, which is a, another term for an exercise, where he saw a craft that he couldn't explain. So, uh, it's interesting. Who knows what is is? is you really have to kind of understand how uh, these ships work and how you know the different parts of the puzzle fit together and where all these guys are physically on the ships and who they talk to. It's, it appears to me that you know these pilots pretty much you know they stick stick together. You know, mm-hmm. so. Um, Anyway, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but it's it's a it's a, actually a, it's a larger metaphor for when you look at what's going on inside the Pentagon. Is um, this information you know is not widely known? Right. People, you hear a lot of people, and here's what's really interesting, Alejandro. I haven't, we haven't I haven't told anyone about this yet, but if you notice at the end of our ep, uh, every episode now, we have an email. Uh, info at unidentified.tv mm-hmm. where we uh, have put out the word for uh, po- uh, military personnel to contact us. We have gotten scores and scores mm-hmm. of emails from people all with say, telling us their name and rank and where they were deployed, many of whom are talking about similar instances that you uh, see in this series. Um, and uh, including several people who are backing up the stories of some of the guys that you've seen in who, you know, were on ships, even sending us pictures with uh, them with one, a couple of the, uh, the guys who you see in our show saying, hey, I know that guy. He, I know that story. He's telling you the truth. So it's it's really I feel like we've kind of, you know, crossed the Rubicon on this story in a lot of way. And it's we're opening up floodgates um, and we're sifting through this as we go. And, I, and if other military people are listening to this, we we are absolutely reading every single one of those emails. And we're going to be following up with people uh, for the stories that we you know feel are interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's why reporting like yours is important so you can see the investigation unfold because the what people assume uh, how things work is not necessarily the case and, and sometimes can even be counterintuitive. And so it's a learning process to learn how, you know, this all happens and how, you know, this information can only be held by maybe just a handful of people um, as opposed to, you, you know, to the the masses or large amounts of people like some people assume. Yeah. I mean, that's what really where this, the, the, the series kind of takes a turn where we start 
you start seeing how uh, Lou and Chris are working behind the scenes. You know, one of the interesting things that I think is is a, is that people really need to understand about Melon and Elizondo is these guys are not whistleblowers. People are trying to kind of put them into that frame. Um, these guys still have security clearances, and they're still working very closely with people uh, both uh, in in all say th- you know uh, the military executive and um, the intelligence community. Um, they have very close connections, and I've seen that personally. I've been in meetings uh, with them with different members of these different branches of government. Mm-hmm. Say, so um, I think it's, and they're open about that. I think people are trying. People are getting a little bit. Maybe we didn't make that clear enough in the show that these guys are not trying to say that they're 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 not there. And that's what's such a, a tricky part about this storytelling is there's a lot of information that they can't tell me and they can't say on camera about what they've learned. And that's why we're going out in the show to get these firsthand accounts from um, the pilots themselves, because um, these guys, you know, are still bound by their security clearances. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about episode three, uh, Guadalupe Island, uh, because it was a, the island is so cool looking. Of course, so isn't it, was, it incredible? It's yeah, like Kong Island. You know, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. Monster <laughs> Island from Godzilla or something. Right. And uh, so you get there, and uh, you've got these coordinates from Kevin Day, the radar uh, operator, yep. supervisor on the the Nimitz in two thousand four, and he said this is where he was getting the hits. And you get there. Were you surprised when you started talking to the locals? You know, uh, it. W- I have to say it was, I was super, as a producer and a showrunner, extremely worried about that trip because it was a major, you know, I don't know if you know about making television, it's a major expense to rent a boat, right? Mm. Uh, in, in the world of documentary filmmaking. Um, so it was a major sort of risk we were taking. We were like, okay, we're going to go down to Mexico. We don't know what we're going to find. We teamed up with this amazing uh, local journalist named uh, Jordi Labreja, who works out of Tijuana, kind of guy, mostly covers the cartel wars down there. Um, and But he's, you know, spends, he's, knows the Ensenada area. And he immediately, when I first talked to him and said, you know, you hear about that all the time down here. This is like, it's on the, there are sightings on the news. There's like big, there's UFO radio shows on the local radio in Baja, California. So it's like a very well-known thing uh, that UFO sightings are kind of a thing down there. Um, So we sent him ahead of time down to um, to Ensenada and just to, to, to look around and talk to people. And he said, man, we, it was like, you know, swinging a cat. It was all I had to do was just start talking to people on the street. And all these fishermen seemed to have these stories. Um, and none of them knew about the Nimitz incident. They hadn't, that, that was something that, you know, wasn't really widely reported in there, or at least, you know, wasn't part of their world. They didn't really know much about it. So they were really kind of tableau rosas. We went down there and it was a, you know, crazy experience. I wasn't there, my, to be clear, my producers went down there. I get really seasick, so I would have died on that little boat. Oh, really? But, uh, yeah, I would not have made it uh, to Guadalupe. But, no, it was incredible. And I think the, the most eerie part of the spine-tingling part about it 
was the pilot. That pilot, Ojeda, um, who basically, you know, flies in those waters all the time, his incident um, where he basically had a run-in with a tic-tac-shaped craft was in 2015, right, 11 years after the Nimitz incident. And when he told us, he basically gave us the approximate location. You know, he said he was 23 miles uh, south of Ensenada, about 10 miles off the coast. When we kind of roughly plotted that on the map, it was like, I believe, I don't, I believe it was 20 miles away from where the, uh, Fravor and his wingman intercepted the Tic Tac in 2004, which when I told one of the pilots about that, they were like, that's basically the same location. Our turning radius is like 10 miles when we circle, you know, in holding pattern Mm -hmm. essentially. So 11 years later, he runs into a craft doing the exact same thing, moving in that weird tick, like, you know, how uh, Fravor described it, almost like a ping pong ball inside of a glass cube. And then when it kind of became aware of him, shot right across his nose. That's very, very similar to what Fravor described uh, the, the Nimitz tic-tac uh doing so that really blew my mind and then when we got out to guadalupe where and that's the the location where the chief radar operator from the nimitz said they were all disappearing off his radar envelope so he wasn't sure whether they were physically disappearing or but that's where he was last able to see them but he said they were all moving in the southerly location down the Pacific, and then all right to that one location. And he gave us those Latin longs. And when we got out there on the boat, sure enough, all the fishermen who who work out of this tiny little fisherman's collective all um, said they'd see things there all the time, including one of the world's most renowned great white shark, uh, you know, scientists who also said he saw something. So it was uh, was pretty mind-blowing to hear that piece of the puzzle um, and and to hear that the, now if you look and this went a little bit quick in the show but we plotted them all on the map and also by date and it went they, we, they were seeing them before 2004 and they were seeing them the, the most recent one was in it was last year 2018 so it's an ongoing thing whatever these are whether you know, you want to argue that there's some kind of Navy drone swarm that they just constantly have flying around there. You know, I mean, there is interesting, mysterious stuff going on there. The, you know, Guadalupe Island is like this really interesting controlled uh, environment where foreigners are not actually, we tried very hard to get permission from the Mexican government to, to be able to land on it and go shoot on shore. And we couldn't get permission. Um, they claim that uh, that was weird. A, yeah, they don't let. Yeah, foreigners. well, it's, it's well. I think it has to do with the fact that I mean, it's I. It's hard to get a straight answer exactly. I mean, the the official answer is that it's a marine refuge, so it's sort of like a Galapagos type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where they they're trying to keep the footprint really low. Um, so the only people who have permission there are there's like a tiny little fisherman's collective, and they have like some you know small shacks where they sleep and fish off there for a couple of weeks at a time, and then they go back and you know they live in Baja. There's also a Mexican weather army. Uh, uh, weather station on the island, um, but other than, but I think it, it pro- most you know 
I don't know what it really has to be. One of the other theories we heard from, from our Mexican contacts was it has to do with there's no immigration on the, on the shore there. So they, there's no one to check a passport. So if you're, if you're coming into Mexico, if it's their first time you're entering Mexican soil, there's no, there's, they don't have any facilities to basically uh, allow you into the country, if that makes sense. I see. Um, it honestly is probably it also probably something it also has to do with drugs in the sense that they don't want people you know if that is a that could be a great jump off point mm-hmm. you know for people bringing drugs up there and if people were kind of you know so they're trying to keep it as min- the footprint as minimal as possible or you could go conspiracy theory right again you can't prove a negative that maybe it has to do with whatever you see flying over there and there's some secret you know underground uh, Illuminati UFO base on the island, right? It's, I mean, whenever you, if you want to go there, there's you can't argue that we know there's not. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we're about uh, out of time, but it's a good thing to yeah. end on because we're yeah. going to be at AlienCon, you and I, this weekend, and yeah. uh, we're going to hear a lot of pretty wild uh, uh, theories, I think. Yeah, I'm so excited. I've never been to any any of these conferences, so I'm, I'm really excited to be able to meet you in person and to to learn a lot more and to talk more about the show and answer any questions uh, I can. Well, the show is awesome. Thank you so much for coming on with me again for a few minutes to talk about these next couple of episodes. And uh, I cannot tell you how excited I get mm-hmm. watching this show. Uh, it's so much fun, and you guys have done a great job. All right, excellent. All right, talk to you later. Talk to you later. Thank you so much to Anthony LaPay for joining us and sharing some of the cool stuff that's going on with the show Unidentified. Hopefully you're able to catch that. That's every Friday on the History Channel. Really good stuff. You can also go to the History Channel website and look up the Unidentified website. They've got some great articles there, just like they were doing with Project Blue Book. They have some cool stuff up there. Also, of course, uh, what's great is a lot of what LaPay uh, mentioned, he even mentioned Nick Pope, uh, was the type of stuff that we're talking with Nick about. Remember, you can go visit Nick Pope's site at nickpope.net. Awesome show today. Thank you so much to everybody who joined us. Thank you to Martin Willis for joining us with the news. Um, I also want to remind you we have some really cool things coming up with the UFO Congress. Uh, James Fox is going to be speaking, and we just added to the list Chuck Zukowski. He's got a brand new show called Alien Highway that is on the Travel Channel, and it covers Skinwalker Ranch related to all of this stuff that we've been talking about. So they did a great job with that episode. They had some weird stuff happen, too. So go check out Alien Highway on the Travel Channel. Also, if you haven't heard, of course, I've interviewed Chuck Zukowski many times because we've been buddies for a very, very long time. But I'll also have him and the whole crew from Alien Highway on hopefully sometime soon. We're working on that. So be sure to go to ufocongress.com so you can see Chuck, you can see James Fox, you can see Kevin Day, all of these really cool people at the conference. It's going to be a lot of fun. Go to ufocongress.com. Remember, ufocongress.com, and you can find out more information about the event and sign up soon, especially get rooms because the rooms typically sell out. We've got more rooms at this hotel than we've had at a previous hotel, but uh, sign up as soon as you can, and and especially your room so you don't run uh, 
to be sure that you get a room in the host hotel. But thank you all so much. Come say hi this weekend at AlienCon if you're there. I always love to say hi to listeners. In fact, at Phoenix MUFON, I, I met a couple more. And hello to those of you who said hi at Phoenix MUFON. Thank you all so much for joining us this week. We'll have another great show next week. Until next time, adios muchachos. <laughs>